He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, September 11, 2021. A fraught day full of sadness 20 years ago. And now the sadness of Afghanistan, a war that we bungled. This is a consequential date, Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. For those of you new to the show, I am a Jew. So is our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who's got the perfect song once again. It's entitled, Easier Said Than Done. And it's perfect for this time of year and these days of all when the book of life is open and God is determining who shall live and who shall die. What a heavy concept. Suzanne Morphew probably died right on or before Mother's Day 2020. She's been missing ever since. Her husband, Barry Morphew, is charged with the crime, and it is a sensational Colorado case. Set in Chafee County, the Salida Courthouse, the preliminary hearing concludes this coming week. Judge Murphy needs to make the call, probable cause, yes or no. First-degree murder after deliberation. Is proof evident? Presumption great? Can Barry Morphew continue to be held without bail? You can only do that if you have a strong first-degree murder case. And this is a doozy with outstanding defense attorneys, Iris Aton, Drew Nielsen. We profiled them this week in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Josh Maximon, my friend, who just collected on the biggest civil jury verdict in Colorado history. Learn about that amazing case. A bicyclist horribly injured. Gary Sudam, a few years ago, near Sloan's Lake in Denver, a Denver jury awarded $52.5 million with interest. It had to be paid once the appellate courts turned down the appeal we have the winning lawyer, Josh Maxmon, who also happens to be contemporaries and friends and colleagues with Iris Aton and Drew Nielsen, counsel for Barry Morphew. And they are going up against Linda Stanley, the DA in the 11th Judicial District, the DA who went on social media, podcasting, you got to love that, with my first guest, Mike King. He is a veteran law enforcer from Utah. He worked for the AG's office. He carried a badge, and now he's got a popular YouTube show called Profiling Evil. He's a criminal profiler and a great guest. His show has dissected the Morphew case, including an incredible interview post-preliminary hearing with the DA Linda Stanley, and before the ruling... You've got to give it a listen, and listen you will. This is sensational show today. 
Thank you to my guests first, Mike King, then Josh Maximon, then my troubadour with Easier Said Than Done. Thank you. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? Slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review push the podcast to your friends let them listen thank you hello is this mike king it is mike king this is craig (laughs) silverman a new fan how you doing what a great new discovery me discovering oh, your you, show. You, you're really kind. Obviously, why you're successful. <laughs> well, thanks for that. I don't know if you did your research about me, but I want to learn about you. I, I web- actually, you, you, as a prosecutor, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to you without having to at least cyber snoop you a little bit, right? I hope so. But let's <laughs> talk about you profiling right. evil. Yes, sir. What a great website. What a great franchise. Tell everybody how you got involved in this. You know, it's crazy. I I was actually approached by my kids who I think got tired of hearing my old cop stories. And they said, hey, why don't we just put one of these out on the uh, internet and see what happens? We can do a little quick YouTube uh, video of you talking about an old criminal case and what your thoughts were. And I figured, you know, there'd be four or five people listening to this dribble, and and uh, we put it up, and I'll be darned if uh, a bunch of people didn't think there was some value in it. And so we started looking at unsolved criminal cases and trying to look at what law enforcement was doing and try to 
maybe repaint the picture that has so negatively been uh, drafted in the last couple of years about law enforcement, started looking for chances to kind of build up the profession and rehumanize law enforcement. And along the way, talk about these criminal cases and hopefully bring a little bit of hope to families. You do a great job. And I just am captivated by your production. Who's this guy, Skyler? <laughs> Skyler is my son. He uh, he started with the after after uh, graduating from the university. He started with the Ogden City Police Department, uh, and our fear was that he would uh, spend a career in law enforcement. and And we thought he was able to do much better. And so he went into software sales for law enforcement and has been very successful. and And from time to time joins me. We call him part of the back office where I have my son-in-law who also uh, takes part and a close family friend who takes part. And and those three offer youth and understanding of this digital market. And I offer grumpiness and old age and a little bit of wisdom. One operation. I have a a dog, a four-year-old golden doodle named Skylar. They spell it differently. And your son's name, when you watched Hamilton, or have you seen Hamilton, you know, uh, Philip Schuyler yes. is a star character in one of the big songs is the Schuyler Sisters. <laughs> I don't know that he's watched, and I've never put two and two together. Well, Philip Schuyler was the first senator from New York. He ended up having the seat that Hillary Clinton held, Robert F. Kennedy held, and isn't that a good crime story there, the release of Sirhan? But I digress. Do you know who the first senator was from Colorado? I do not. A guy named Chafee, for whom Chafee County is named. And And isn't that something? One of his daughters married Ulysses S. Grant's son. So there's another interesting Chafee County matrimonial story. We will get to the Morpheus, but more about you, Mike King, because you and your boy Skyler, you do a great job. And I watched you interview the DA, Linda Stanley, and I could not take my eyes off it. It was compelling. I refer everybody to take a look at it on Mike King's YouTube channel. Uh, profiling evil. You will find him on every social media now, but let me get your bona fides in law enforcement. I was prosecutor for 16 years in Denver. By the way, our major crime street going east-west is Colfax, named for Schuyler Colfax, who was Speaker of the House under Lincoln and then Vice President under U.S. Grant. That's something your son Schuyler should know. Anyway, and they were all related, by the way. But back to you and your story. I I just want to know um, how you got involved in law enforcement, where you did your badge carrying, and what it means to you. Well, uh, I was fortunate. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood in the western part of Salt Lake City, It was uh, a a middle-class neighborhood. I attended South High School in Salt Lake City. And like many boys in my neighborhood, I was starting to get into a little bit of a misspent life. 
And thankfully, I had a Salt Lake City police officer who was assigned to South High School uh, and a Salt Lake County deputy who lived three doors down from me. And somehow those two took an interest in me. And uh, and the next thing I knew, I was captivated by this career opportunity and uh, started to focus my sights on becoming a police officer. Which department? I started with the Ogden City Police Department, which is about 30 miles north of Salt Lake City. I worked there for about nine years, and then I was hired in a strange situation. I actually was out working the streets one night, and a woman approached me and said, hey, do you have a minute to talk to me? I just murdered a woman. And, you know, you hear those kind of things, and I thought, well, maybe she's crazy, but you can't not (laughs) listen. And uh, so I sat down with her, and and uh, and as we talked, I realized that in fact she had just executed a woman not far from where we were standing. It happened to be a, a lover's wife, and uh, and so I went into the station and got her confession, and and then at the conclusion, her uh, as we were booking her into jail, she said, "Would you mind calling my attorney and letting him know?" And, and so I called the defense attorney and told him we had his client and of course he was very unhappy that she'd given a statement and uh, he ended up becoming the county attorney. And because of that homicide investigation and the way in which I conducted that interview, he offered me a position to come in and work in investigations. I became his chief of staff. And then from there, he went to the attorney general's office as the chief deputy to Jan Graham, who was attorney general at the time, and brought me in, and I rose through the ranks to chief of staff in the attorney general's office. Now I understand you better, because I knew types like you within the Denver DA's office, star investigators who somehow, some way, moved from, usually in our case, Denver police to the Denver DA's office, and they liked that side of it, and who wouldn't? And we valued that kind of interplay. Such an odd balance between uh, law enforcement and the DA's office, and it's so scrutinized now, especially in the context of police-involved shootings. But undeniably, especially back in the day, we were teammates, right? I mean, I wanted to get along with the Denver police. I taught at the Denver Police Academy. We had liaisons our intake unit where I staffed it on two tours for six months at a time was right there in DPD HQ, and we kind of partied uh, together too. So there was camaraderie. I love your stuff about choir practice because you loved, you, you walked that world between being a cop and being a prosecutor. You know all about it. Tell people your feelings. Can't be that different in Metro Salt Lake and Denver were kind of the same sort of place. You know, it really is interesting. And, and I absolutely cherish the experiences I had with the prosecutors, not only at the DA level, but at the attorney general level. I found that every time I worked on a case, one of the first things that I would do is go down and sit with the prosecutors and figure out where I went wrong, where I pushed too closely to the sun. And it it was an opportunity for me to grow. But what happened along the way is the relationship blossomed to where the prosecutors were asking me questions 
about the investigative process and starting to look at it from an investigator's point of view too. And so it was a, a great mix. And I found that the more interaction I had with the prosecutor, the better the case went and the more successful it was for everyone, including the perpetrator. Oh, yeah. And you get a good investigator, and I'm sure you were one, Mike King. I can just tell by the way you present yourself, you come up with ways to make the case better. Even after it's filed, there are always ways to improve either the presentation or whatever. I don't care how much I prepared for big trials, and I had a lot of big trials. I always learned things in the heat of battle. Linda Stanley talked about that with you. You have to flow with the punches and have a great investigator by your side is a big help. Hey, go interview that witness, right? Yeah, and boy, wasn't she an amazing prosecutor to talk to and have on the air. And there were a lot of people who were really taking sniper shots at me. Oh, we're going to get to that. That's something, yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, we'll let you bring that up in a minute. But I thought how remarkable and what confidence she has to be able to know that number one, she's professional enough that she's not going to be tripped up by some guy like me and that she's professional enough that she knows where the lines are. I mean, this was about educating the public, not about sharing secrets. Right. Absolutely. Well, I've got your bona fides and uh, you do a good job and you're a great storyteller. That's part of your appeal on YouTube and elsewhere. And unlike my show at this stage, I don't want to get all dolled up, and I don't have a good-looking kid named Skylar helping me out, so I like to put it on audio because I have a radio background, and my audience has kind of followed me, and they know I like to talk about crime dramas, and that's more or less how I got in the media, talking about Jean Benet and Columbine and the late Kobe Bryant. There's new uh, interesting revelations even today about that, but... None of those cases went to trial. The thing I like about the Morphew matter, and there's nothing to like about the apparent murder of Suzanne Morphew, but in terms of following a case, I think this baby's going to trial, don't you? Uh, I do, too. I, I think he's going to be bound over, and uh, and then I think we're going to really see an interesting era if there are negotiations that might start happening, uh, or just, frankly, the the pressure that this will place on the defense and on Barry Morphew to to give up the location of Suzanne if, in fact, he is responsible for her death. I have done a couple of shows on Morphew. For people who don't remember, during the pandemic, May 2020, Mother's Day of all days, she's reported missing. Uh, she's never found. A bike is found in an odd area not far from the house, which is... Uh, right above the Arkansas River. This couple came from Alexandria, Indiana, made a new life two years prior in a suburb of Salida, unincorporated Chaffee County. And then some suspicion focuses on Barry, who does odd things, says incriminating matters, but her body's never found. There was an election for a new DA. Linda Stanley won during uh, the November 2020 election. She took office in January, and right before Mother's Day, May 21, she arrested, filed an arrest warrant, approved it, 
And I learned, thanks to Mike King and his exceptional show, that she probably would have used grand jury, but COVID precluded it. Man, you made all sorts of news. Did I summarize the case okay? No, I, th- I thought you did perfectly. And, and what a compelling case. It's, it's tragic to me that a, a, a successful family and a beautiful woman like this with everything that seems to be together is the one that captivates all of our attention when we look at the fact that in the United States, hundreds of thousands of people disappear every year and families are left with the same trauma that we've all watched for the last two year or year and a half now of Suzanne's case unfolding. Yeah, you know, we debated that during Jean Benet. Is it because she was beautiful, telegenic? Of course, that was a big part of it because she was white. Yeah, uh, probably, but I made no apologies for caring about the murder of that little girl. And I have strong feelings for what I believe to be the murder of Suzanne Morphew, but that's one of the things at issue, isn't it? Mike, is she dead? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that the sheriff uh, made the most stunning declaration when he said, we have nothing to support that she is not deceased. And uh, and we have to go forward. I mean, who could in any way fathom that this mom would walk away from daughters that she loved, from friends and family that she loved, and never have communication with them again and do it suddenly even with the, the revelations of a relationship that was going on, to not have something to do with that relationship or anything that was even remotely connected to it, but simply disappears off the face of the earth. That's where you prove yourself as the great investigator you were, you still are. Because one of the hypotheses, I think brought up by Barry Morphew, you know the case better than me, a mountain lion. In fact, they live on what, Puma Path? There are big cats up there. Maybe she got snatched. And Mike King, being the investigator he is, you called a witness, didn't you? Oh, you know what? That drove me absolutely crazy when I heard that. Number one, because living in Utah, we live in mountain lion country. We have a mountain property where we see mountain lions periodically. But I've only seen one twice in my lifetime, spending all that time. I've seen sign before. But all of a sudden, we have this allegation or this story or revelation that maybe one of the scenarios is that she was taken down by a mountain lion. Well, that was just hogwash from the start. Uh, If an individual or an animal is taken down by a a cougar, this looks like somebody walked into a propeller. This isn't just a pristine pristine, uh, crime scene where the the mountain lion miraculously picks up this 120-pound body and carries it without a drag mark or any artifact on the ground, a piece of uh, clothing, hair, blood, nothing. And it's just not possible. So what we did is we reached out to the Mountain Lion Foundation and we said, let's bring some experts in to tell us how far would a mountain lion carry its prey what uh, what weight limit could a mountain lion carry? How far would they go and what direction would they go? And we ended up mapping it all out in a three-dimensional way to show that the actual area, if in fact any of it was true, was so small that it would have been quickly searched and, and resolved. And, uh, and 
I think we blew that out of the water and just said it's not possible. I think he did too. And you've got great maps, great graphics. Is that Skylar or one of your other kids? I actually work for a company called Esri, Environmental System Research Institute, that is the mapping guru of the world. And so thankfully, I understand geography and geographic information systems. And so it's pretty easy for me to throw those together and analyze geographically while we analyze behavior and crime. I know it happened. Her bike found near the intersection of County Road 225 and Colorado State Highway 50. And I looked at it on Google Maps, but your maps are better. And you have this kind of knowledge because Carol McKinley, who's been in the courtroom for 2020, she was a guest a couple of weeks ago, and she said when the bicycle was retrieved, they had to bring it way back up. It was very steep to get it back to the road, which corresponds with the old boyfriend of Macy, who said, hey, she never rode that way. That would be odd. And that looks like a tough ride at any time of the day. Tell us what you know about the topography and why it seems so incriminating now that that bicycle was found the way it was at Barry Morphew tried to point in the direction of, hey, something bad happened on the bicycle. Yeah, you know, that was troubling, too, because, number one, the, the uh, little road that you're speaking of is a gravel road leading off of 50. So you have an oil-based road on 50, and then you have a gravel road. And that gravel road goes up to the Morphew residence on Puma Path. The, from there is a steep incline down to the river bottom, and the bicycle was found down in that area. So if any scenario that was presented, such as, uh, she was run off the road by someone or she was in a bicycle collision or the cougar uh, ran up behind and tackled her and took her down. Th there was no nothing that we heard publicly. And then when the prelim came, that came out in the prelim to suggest that there's any artifact on the ground to, to support a tire skidding or uh, someone hitting a tree as they go down that steep uh, embankment down toward the river. No, again, no clothing, no damage to the bike. In fact, I believe testimony during the preliminary hearing came out that the front wheel turned 180 degrees consistent with someone just rolling the bike off the edge and not having someone holding onto the handlebars trying to control the bicycle. So all of those things, again, just cast so much doubt and question to the possibility that it just didn't seem probable. Right. And didn't Barry Morphy, when he was contacted in the Denver area, staying at Broomfield Motel, hey, she's missing. His first words are, check her bike. Or words to yeah, that Yeah, isn't about. that interesting? I mean, how many times in these, in these homicide cases do we see somebody throw someone else under the bus to discover the, the body or the evidence or something else? And now all of a sudden he's saying, hey, start looking for the bike without any indication that that's what she'd be doing. Uh, it, it was all odd, possible, yes, but just seemed so odd to, to be probable. Right. What a good word, odd. Because in the end, as prosecutor, you might say, what are the odds? I mean, this coincidence, that, the other, but I think there still may be a problem because there has not been hide nor hair found of Suzanne Morphew. Some say... Yeah, that's Barry. He's a skilled hunter. He is strong. 
I don't know how big he is. I got a sense he's littler when Linda Stanley said she was taller than him, and I, I know Linda Stanley, but as Suzanne Morphew, you just told me she weighed 120 pounds, and I bet you are speaking from knowledge, right? Well, only that I've heard that number tossed, uh, I even believe, during the uh, preliminary hearing. So, But, but um, you'd agree there hasn't been hide nor hair of that 120 pounds found, right? No, and, and testimony of those in the prelim w was that there was nothing there to support those kinds of claims. I just think in your part of the world, Elizabeth Smart, I heard you say you wanted to be part of that case, and I always wanted to be part of big Colorado cases back when I was doing the job, but from the Colorado perspective, we thought, oh my God, this woman is banished, she's surely dead, and it turned out she was alive, and she still is. So is that possible for Suzanne Morphew? Yeah, I guess what I see is the difference, and thank you for mentioning, Elizabeth, what a remarkable story and a story of hope for families that have someone missing. Uh, in fact, Ed Smart did call. I was at the Attorney General's office and asked if I could come and provide a profile on the case, and a new Attorney General at that time uh, didn't allow me to participate, and that was very frustrating for me, uh, but that, that was life and that was the politics but she eventually is found. This is, this is different. This, this isn't a child who's under the control of someone else. This is an adult that unless, unless she completely hated her life, completely hated the devices that she was tethered to, including up and until the last moment she was seen uh, that we know of on Saturday before Mother's Day, um, unless she decided to sacrifice all those things that behaviorally were such an important part of her life, texting, Facebooking, communicating on WhatsApp, uh, other kinds of technologies, the fact that she dealt with and talked with her best friend on the phone regularly, uh, the, that she had two daughters that she loved, that she had a community that she dealt with at the church, and a family on her uh, her side that she loved and spoke to, to all of a sudden stop doesn't make sense. Right. But I know what the defense attorneys are going to say. They've already started on the secrets of Suzanne. And even though she had all those confidants, which you correctly listed, she told none of them about her affair with Mr. Liebler, the former high school golfer back in Indiana, who is apparently a father of six in Michigan. So she was capable of keeping secrets about her personal life, right? You know, we, we talked about that on the show a little bit, about the fact that we have three personas in our uh, lives and in our lifestyles. We have this public persona that we all see that you and I are participating in now. But then we have a private side to our life that maybe those that are more intimate with us know. They know what our fears are. They know what our goofiness is. But then we have a secret side that rarely comes out to anyone. In serial killers, for instance, the only people that ever really get to see that secret side end up being the victims who don't survive. And so with Suzanne, we see that there was this public side. We see that there's a private side where she's carrying on relationships with friends and saying, I'm unhappy in my relationship at home. I'm, I'm ready to move on. 
But then she surprises the world with this secret side that says I'm having an affair with someone that I found uh, some peace and some comfort in and a place where I can share my most intimate secrets. But even that person wasn't aware that all of a sudden she just disappeared off the map. Now, there are a lot of frustrating things around that and why someone didn't step forward and say, hey, I got to tell you what I know. But, but regardless, those relationships ended immediately, and, uh, and that's what's troubling. A lot of what I know about Alexandria, Indiana, is from talking to Carol McKinley and watching your presentations. You did a lot of background. This is a small-town story. Salida is a small town, and they didn't even live in the town. That's where the courthouse is. They lived in the unincorporated part of Chaffee County near Maysville. But this really involves some small towns outside of Indianapolis where the Morphews and the Moore family, or the Mormon family, M-O-O-R-M-A-N, they all lived Correct. together and they ended up going to Purdue together. And you do a good job of fleshing it out. And this case really hits home not just because I played baseball and basketball like Barry in high school, but because I got married in late 94 and I have a 22-year-old and an 18-year-old, and best I can tell, they got married late 94, and they have two daughters, Where I, whereas I have two sons. So I, I had exactly the same length of marriage. It's, it seemed like a good marriage on the surface. I've thrown a lot out there, but a lot of this case is going to come down to what was really the state of the marriage and the relationship. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what more comes out. The, I think that the prosecution started to tip their hand a little bit in the preliminary hearing, talking about friends who came forward and spoke about the problems, text messages that suggested there were problems, and uh, and and the fact that there were other challenges like financial problems that were starting to surface. And so all of these are going to become really intriguing as we look at what causes someone to do something like this and it was it uh good people that were just pushed to the brink uh, gas and flame that suddenly erupted and then somebody made a really poor decision and and i often think when when i look at some of these crime scenes of when we were children and we would play and if something didn't go right when we were playing somebody would yell do-overs mm -hmm. and we would fix the script but you can't fix a homicide script. All you can do is stage. Yeah, dead is dead. No doubt about it. And we'll get to the problem of proving this is after deliberation. I think she has her hands full. But let's just kind of flesh out the families because to me, even if the judge is having a tough time deciding, the critical family members seem to be siding with Barry. And I think that's important. The daughters, Macy and Mallory, all the indications from the courtroom are they were mouthing love to their father. I mean, they loved their mother, no evidence to the contrary. And it is even suggested that Macy thought she should get a court order against dad, stuff like that. But if they're standing by dad now, a jury sees that. Isn't that a problem for uh, the prosecution? I, I think it's in the way in which the prosecution presents it. I would put the question back on you as a former prosecutor, but for me, behaviorally, 
Not at all. These children have lost their mother. They are uh, losing their father through this process. I cannot imagine the emotional trauma that they are going through. And, uh, and who would want to believe that your parent killed the other parent? It's just too much to ask for any kind of level thinking in that kind of a situation. And I think that's the, the kind of scenario that I would present for any kind of jury if I were in your shoes. And that would be, how on earth could you rely on the emotion of someone in this position? And that's a good argument. And of course, these daughters could never serve on the jury for that very reason. But you could expect them to sit there. And it's interesting because there's a tension between the rules of sequestration. Normally, a witness can't sit through a hearing, but victims are allowed to sit in. And under Colorado laws, a victim in a homicide is, of course, an immediate family member. And let's not forget that Suzanne has siblings, and some remaining family. Her parents passed away, and that's part of the story, too. Didn't she inherit some money, and then it all got put toward this new life for them in Colorado, and there were some resentments and some feelings that Barry had taken advantage of the the Mormon clan? There had been testimony, including from Suzanne's brother, that uh, at the death of her mother, there was uh, monies that were transferred and questions arose whether those monies should go into business ventures. And Suzanne's uh, preference was to put it into a home where it was secure and and, uh, perhaps for her uh, a safer bet. Uh, That in some circles suggests that there was some tension, but she was successful in getting that done and and a a large sum of money went into the Puma Path home. Many people believed and hoped that Colorado law would never allow the sale of that home until the seven-year period of time after Suzanne's disappearance occurred. But through some really interesting uh, wranglings, uh, that home was sold and conservatorship was transferred from Indiana to Colorado, and uh, that home was sold, and and then that put the money back into uh, Barry's hands. I know. Another event that you cover so regularly, let's let's promo your work because it's fantastic. How can people find you? And you've written books. Now I'm interested in your books, too, because you've got a good style, and, and I like your knowledge of this Morphew matter. Well, folks can, can look at us at, at Profiling Evil on all the normal social media channels. Just go to YouTube and look up Profiling Evil on any favorite podcast platform. You can get us at Profiling Evil. And I also have a really fun uh, podcast that has just gone crazy in Southeast Asia called Mapping Evil with Mike King. It's uh, number three on Amazon, or I mean on uh, Apple's podcast list. And uh, it's, a, it's a podcast where I teamed up with a journalist from Australia who's an award-winning big name. And uh, I talk about a serial killer case in the States, and then I compare it to a serial predator in Australia. And we talk about behavioral characteristics and similarities. And that thing has just gone crazy and has been a lot of fun, too. That's the thing about American crime. It's got an audience all around the world. How hot do you expect this Morphew case to get? 
Oh, I think Morphew is is uh, when when the, when the uh, judge said that he was concerned because this had national uh, interest. That that was an understatement. This case is being watched globally, and people are worked up over the Suzanne Morphew disappearance in this case. They are watching it. They're asking about it. When uh, when we get on, we'll have thousands of people from all over the world on just to hear what the updates are. And that's cool. You have the capacity to broadcast live. I love what you're doing, but I wonder about the title of your show. Of course, you're a criminal profiler, and I agree, especially in the case of serial killers, there's evil involved. So I like your title, Profiling Evil, but when it comes to objectively analyzing cases, do you think your title ever gets in the way? Like, oh, you must think Barry Morphew is evil and you're profiling him. He's guilty. Yeah, I guess that would be as judgmental as saying, can a prosecutor actually think that someone is innocent? Of course. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Absolutely. I think the, the beauty of being professionals is it's about the truth. And, and um, what we found over time is past behavior is predictive of future behavior and that the stripes on certain animals usually don't disappear. And so what we do is we look at um, things from a perspective of let's just examine all of the normal forms of evidence that we look at in cases and then set those aside. And if we think about those forms of evidence. It's the forensic evidence, the physical evidence. It might be eyewitness accounts or confessions or admissions in the case of Barry Morphew, where there are things that he said that they may use against him. Um, and and uh, we put all those things onto a shelf for just a short period of time. And then we go back and look at the case from a behavioral perspective. And adding that into the mix is what really uh, enriches these investigations. And, and it kind of gives you a process to be able to effectively filter off all of the possibilities and focus on the more probable kinds of things, including suspects in a case. And so uh, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. We're called profiling evil. And what we do is we look at cases and we try to understand these evil intents. And sometimes there are evil things, and then sometimes there's pure evil, where it just is devilish in nature. Uh, but in most cases, it's people who just make really poor decisions. You know, you speak about prosecution, and I know it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, and that you would concur when I say that an honest prosecutor can do more for an innocent person than anybody else in the system. Am I right? Absolutely. And um, the other thing I like about you, because you've just put me in mind of so many great senior investigators I worked with, with your calm demeanor, let's look at the facts, let's be objective about it. And the thing I loved about homicide cases in particular is there was no politics involved, right? And it was just, and you didn't care about whether the perpetrator was a Democrat or Republican. It just didn't matter. It's the elements of the crime. And maybe that's part of the appeal of your product and people want to get away from politics and to just the pure objectivity that the adversary process in our criminal justice system 
is supposed to produce. Absolutely. And, you know, I really appreciate you bringing that out because one of the things that we try to do on the Profiling Evil channel is to be a middle ground to just say, let's look at both sides of these. And I've done that many times in regard to the Morphew case where I've, I've uh, almost been a little bit critical of others who have suggested that the way he uh, put his video out or the things that he said or the fact that he didn't go out and work on searches were all evidence that he was responsible for this crime. When, in my opinion, that's absolutely inappropriate to assume those kinds of things. And until you understand the individual, to know whether that's their personality, to, to be quiet and reserved and pulled back or never have a comment to make, uh, how on earth can we judge them until we really get to know them? And, uh, and that's why this uh, socialized crime and true crime environment is dangerous in part, but such a great place for people to learn and to think a little more uh, rationally about these cases, because what our gut's telling us may absolutely be true at the end, and most often is, but it requires evidence and it requires the ability to prove beyond certain ranges of doubt that something happened. And uh, sometimes criminals go free because of that. Politics should not be a part of it, although I've seen it get mixed up. I think it got mixed up in Jean Benet among. Uh, a host of other problems, but a little bit of politics has to come in, or does it in this case? Didn't Barry Morphew vote Suzanne Morphew's ballot for Donald Trump while she was missing? Yeah, yeah, wasn't that something? I mean, what an interesting add-on to this ugly thing that he would take uh, and forge Suzanne's name on her ballot and vote for uh, then-President Trump in the uh, election. And then to very comfortably admit, well, I think that's where she would have wanted to vote. And frankly, uh, then he shared his own view on politics about whether the process is, is uh, honest or not. But yeah, what a crazy twist to this entire case. You know, his attitude about, hey, it was a rigged election. Who cares if I rigged it a little? Whatever That might play where he's being tried because... Donald Trump, I'm sure, won that district, and we know that Linda Stanley, a Republican, defeated an incumbent Democratic DA, and that really was the big event that triggered the Barry Morphew arrest, and that's interesting, don't you think? Oh, that's the question I want answered is, which way did Barry vote during the uh, DA election? That That's the question I have, but, you know, what's really important to me is that all of this becomes noise, and it gets us to not focus on the elements of this case. And this is a circumstantial case without question, but uh, there are so many convictions that have been made in the history of this country on circumstantial homicide cases. I'm raising that, all uh, my hands. I loved a good circumstantial case. People can lie, but good, solid circumstantial evidence like a fingerprint, like DNA, I mean, that's... That's circumstantial evidence. Hey, you were here, dude. So. Yeah, isn't I know, isn't that great? And and in reality, shouldn't every case be a circumstantial case? Because you as a prosecutor, at least those that I knew during my career, would never have gone to trial on a single form of evidence, a, a eyewitness account or anything else. They would have had at least a couple of things 
to corroborate right. those other pieces of information. And that's what makes these circumstantial cases so dang powerful, in my opinion. I recommend anybody tune into YouTube, look up Mike King, uh, Profiling Evil, but the Linda Stanley interview, and it, it occurred at the end of August while we're waiting for the ruling from Judge Murphy. She goes on the air with you, and it was an entertaining interview, and you wonder how much is she going to say, is this appropriate, inappropriate? But I can tell you it kept my attention and uh, tens of thousands of others. What's been the reaction to your amazing interview with Linda Stanley as she talked about how the preliminary hearing went and she answered some of your questions? She kind of dodged others, but I just thought it was unusual. And I've been following Colorado prosecutors for 40 years. (laughs) It was remarkable that that she would agree to do that. And I think that's built on some trust. We actually had her on uh, the YouTube channel right after she became uh, the prosecuting attorney for uh, the 11th district. And uh, over that period of time, I never stepped over the edge and I never asked or never pried and allowed each interview that we did to be Uh, informational in nature to teach people about this process that we call the criminal justice system and the the, uh, prosecutorial responsibility. And so I think it was probably a safe place for her to come, but still, you never know when that errant question is going to come. And we received so many negative comments initially from a very few and uh, and I remember, and again, I talk about the back office who support me, much younger people than me. You and I grew up in an area where we responded to the one all the time to talk to them about their concerns and complaints. And, and in this uh, YouTube era, there are the ones who do nothing but try to be anarchists. And so you have to try to understand who really have legitimate kinds of complaints that you need to address and who is just out there trying to disrupt and create conflict and and disorganization. And so we moved forward. We uh, came onto the show. We did our thing. And once that show aired, people had the same comments that you have shared today of this was informative, this was helpful, this didn't step over the line like we expected. People uh, were worried that would this case be sacrificed because of a moment of fame on a YouTube channel? There's no moment of fame on a YouTube channel. It's just the hell, an opportunity. The hell there's not. Everybody watches YouTube now, and everybody's <laughs> getting attracted to your show. Well, we, we hope they, they do come. We hope that they stick around. And one thing we've really tried to do is is not be out there and not be slanted one direction or another. Uh, we, we talk about how great the work law enforcement's doing, but we're not afraid to say when cops blow it. And uh, we have to be able to own that. But, but the one right. thing we hope is that people will come in. But it does bring us back to your, to your title, which is The Innocence Project. No, I mean Profiling Evil, one of the two. Anyway, I, I think you do a great job, and I can see your objectivity. And she volunteered information that I found really important when she said she would have used the grand jury, but for COVID, wasn't that a remarkable thing when she made news that, like that on your show? 
that was. In fact, that morning I had uh, done an interview with Nancy Grace, and she asked that question, why didn't she just go to grand jury? And so I, I uh, sounded intelligent in asking, but all I was doing was regurgitating what I'd heard. And uh, I just loved her response to that. It it educated us that, yes, there's a process that would have been a preferable process, but we couldn't wait any longer. And I just thought it was remarkable the way in which she handled those questions. Especially when she's being praised for making the call herself. Hey, I'm making the call. And she put together a 100-page arrest affidavit that nobody has seen as yet. We may see it at the end of the week. Is that right? Well, you know what? I'm I'm hoping that that will be released. Now, if he's not bound over, is there less chance that it would be released since they can't move forward at this point? Uh, probably. But I would hope at this point the judge has had enough out in there in the public realm that they would release that. Now, he suggests that it's going to be highly redacted. And the way that he has erred on the side of the defense, I think, is is really pretty cool because it's going to minimize the number of things that the defense could eventually appeal. But more importantly, if there are some things in there that um, shouldn't be out yet, maybe it's okay to redact them, but that may, that may have a lot of black ink on it. Now, not only did you get the DA who's in charge of everything, Barry Morphew's future being item number one, Linda Stanley's, is that her husband, Carson? He comes on for a nice little cameo? Yeah, wasn't that fun? It was fun. I'm telling you, this that's was a, that's an incredible like Hollywood level of meets trust. Uh, Geraldo. I used to do Geraldo's show back when he analyzed cases like Jean Benet, but we never cut to cameos like that. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can do that on YouTube and, and probably not get away with it when you're cutting the news for the evening. But uh, yeah, I mean, what to me, that was just such a show of respect for what we're doing, and, because that's risky to share who your loved ones are in your family. And, and, uh, and one of the things we've been really pleased with at Profiling Evil is that the, the demographic that we have listening to our channel uh, is really constructive in the criticisms they have. We have good arguments, and I love conflict. I, it doesn't bother me a bit because it gives us an opportunity to hear each other and talk through things and solve problems. And uh, and the community actually jumps on people that get on and start being aggressive or using foul language or other kinds of things. So it's been really pretty interesting to watch this community come together on Profiling Evil. Right. And and you are known as a former cop, and so you are pro-police. And I think Linda Stanley loves that because she was a police officer in the Denver area. I've known her in so many roles around the Denver area, and it's amazing to watch her and to hear why she was wearing jeans during the press conference. Where do I learn that? On Profiling Evil. She told it to Mike King, and what a great story that was and made a real— human. And uh, I got to know a lot more about her than I ever had before. Way to go. Well, I'll tell you what, she is a remarkable human being, but more importantly, she is one dogged and determined prosecutor. And uh, and she works night and day. And that's the thing that I was so impressed with. I, I mean, when she came into office, it wasn't many weeks after that, 
that they arrested, um, I believe his last name was Phillips, the serial killer in, in Colorado down there, Breckenridge, um, that, uh, that Kelsey Schelling's case went to trial, a, a circumstantial murder case with uh, Dante Lucas, and uh, he was convicted. I mean, there are some big things happening in Colorado, and uh, the, the people who commit crime shouldn't stop looking over their shoulder. She said she quit policing because she worried about um, the mortality rate. She wanted to be there for her family, but she is the furthest thing from timid. And then, my God, talk about entertaining the host of your show, you. I think it was you. Maybe it was Skylar. But you said there have been reports from the courtroom that during the proceedings, Barry Morphew, Barry Morphew is staring darts into you, and you're looking right back at him. Do you have any response? Was that you <laughs> or your that, son who asked that? Uh, that was that was me, and I'm sure Skyler was right there. Uh, but yeah, wasn't that awesome that she didn't back down from his? Tell everybody at her response. She stared him back until he looked away, and and uh, that that to me just said so much. No, she added a little something. I'll let you cover that. She said, <laughs> I realized that I'm taller than him. <laughs> yep. Quite That's a put true. down for next jock. How tall is Linda Stanley? I'm trying to remember. She's a tall and very confident lady. I have respect for her, but I'm telling you that it's one thing to get comments on your YouTube saying, hey, she shouldn't have done it. Do you know what Linda Stanley is up against in the form of Iris Aton and Drew Nielsen? Oh, boy, I'll tell you, I've done a little bit of research on those two, and they are go-getters, and they have had real success protecting their clients. This thing is certainly not over if he's bound over. If you want to do more research, and you're a great researcher, that's part of being a great investigator. You're going to listen to my other guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Josh Maximon, who just took down the biggest civil jury verdict in Colorado history, and that's a pretty good uh, thing to have on your mantelpiece or in your bank account. Wow. He's good, and he grew up with Iris and Drew. And he knows them from the public defender's office. And he's going to educate you and me on this powerhouse duo who now represents Barry Morphew. And I heard in the courtroom from Carol McKinley, this was high-class lawyering on all sides. So Linda Stanley needs to stand strong because she's going to be in it. And I bet, well, we'll see whether or not her commentary to you I didn't think she crossed the line, and that's her argument. Hey, I'm a public official. I won't cross the line. I used to talk after preliminary hearing, and I would quote what I had said in the courtroom for reporters who didn't happen to be in there because I figured that was on the record. She's doing a form of that, but in the meantime, you get a lot of extra information if you follow Profiling Evil. What's going to yeah, happen I, on September 17th? How's the judge going to rule? Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be ready. We're actually going to come on on the 16th and do a little bit of a live in the middle of the day, maybe around one o'clock. I'm actually going to be on with a woman who is another YouTube channel creator 
uh, works a channel called Unmasked, and she was in the courtroom for those four days, and she's going to talk about that one thing that you spoke about, how Barry literally looked at every individual in the courtroom and stared them down, uh, and she's going to talk about that experience of watching him one by one go through the audience and, and the relationship that that was happening in the the uh, the nonverbal kinds of things that were going on. I think it's going to be fascinating. Oh, yeah. And there's suspense. I don't know how the judge is going to rule. I mean, if he's wrestling with probable cause, how the hell is the jury ever going to convict beyond reasonable doubt? And maybe he's struggling with proof, evidence, presumption, great, the standard you need to meet to keep a guy in jail without bail. Um, maybe that's you know, I, I want. I wondered about that, too, if that's going to be the bigger challenge that's faced of whether he remains in jail until his jury trial or or not. But I also was really wondering, and I actually did a couple of videos on my channel about this, uh, and that was I kept wondering who signed the arrest affidavit and theorized that the most probable person would have been the same judge that was hearing the preliminary hearing and that Judge Murphy would have been the one to sign it. Um, if if he now has to step up and say, I don't think there was enough there, is that a negative on him thinking there was enough to sign the arrest affidavit in the first place? Yeah, if he doesn't find probable cause. I think that's unlikely, but I'll tell you where I would struggle, and probably it would fall short at this point. Is proof evident presumption great? Because even if I think that he killed her, there's some evidence that she was texting her lover a picture of herself in a bikini. It's conceivable he stumbled on that. She said, yes, and I'm leaving you. I love him. He strangled her right there, disposed of the body. I mean, that's not first-degree murder. That's murder. And But how does anybody prove this happened after deliberation? to see what information they haven't shared yet that will come out in the trial. And, you know, I think about, uh, again, those prosecutors like you that I worked with, they're not going to show all their cards in the preliminary hearing. They're going to hold as much of the heavy stuff as they can and Why? just get enough information out to get that uh, binding over. But, but they want to keep them in jail without bond, right? Well, I, yeah, I think that that's, that's going to be an interesting thing to see if they, if they do that. But uh, No, it, but it just the, makes it tough for them to hold back. But nobody knows. And normally a preliminary hearing is not suspenseful like this, but it is. Your show is hot as hell. I understand why. And you're, you're special on Journey to Jail. That's a good primer for understanding the case against Barry Morphew. You do a great job, Mike. Oh, well, you're very kind, Craig. I, this has been such an honor to be on with you. It's my honor. Good luck with your show, and keep profiling evil, and uh, we'll see you around campus. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Have a good day. All right, you too. Bye. Goodbye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Welcome. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey, Craig. Josh, you record holder. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, I like to have royalty in the legal profession. You now qualify. We are going to talk about the case we have in common at the death of beautiful Bella Thales, the wounding of Darian Simon. We have some developments on that case. And we're going to talk about the defense attorneys in the Barry Morphew matter because Josh Maximon knows them well, Iris Aton, Drew Nielsen. But first, we have to talk about you, Josh Maximon, or more appropriately, uh, an extraordinary client you had, a case you won in Denver that led to a record verdict that not only was awarded, but it was collected. And what great news for Mr. Sidem. I hope I pronounced his name right. Seems it's, like uh, a great guy, and he got chamayed. Uh, and yeah, we're going to talk a little Jewish, too. Chamayed means you just get totally smashed. He was on his bicycle near Sloan's Lake, where my old man grew up, um, tell us about this record-setting case. And well, the, the name is—it's uh, pronounced Sudam. Sudam. Uh, Sudam, and uh, the S U Y D A M. If you want to look correct. it up, because it's a record case now, and it was uh, a court of appeals case. But tell us about Sudam. He is just an amazing person, probably the most inspiring person I've ever been around. Um, he is uh, just has so many different interests growing up. He did skateboarding competitions, was a professional musician um, and, you know, including being on television, doing music, was an engineer 
and then moved to Colorado with his family from California and was working as an engineer and um, rode his bike to work every day, commuted by bike and stayed in shape that way. And it reflected his views about the environment and about what people should do and uh, was riding his bike home from work um, in, in late January of 2017 and had a green light and was hit by um, a first car turning left in front of him. And then a second car also hit him and then fled the scene afterwards. Wow. That's sort of the factual background background to it. Now, Gary Sudnam, he yes. had this eclectic, great background. But I know about your background, and we all do. For people who missed the last appearance of Josh in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, we know he's an avid bicyclist. Your old man Shalom was tied into the rock and roll community. I see that uh, Gary Sudam was a bicyclist, and he liked rock and roll, and it seems like a great fit for a lawyer like you. <laughs> That's, those are some good connections, and just a really warm spirit, intelligent person, well-read, um, has good values. He has three children, a wife, um, and uh, uh, lots of friends. They had just purchased a house near Sloan's Lake, and one of the benefits of it was that it had an up the upstairs. It was a multi-level house, and the upstairs was all open air, and they could play music and and have uh, neighbors over and friends over, and and um, really was just a huge credit to his community. What instrument did he play? Uh, well, he played piano. That, that was his main instrument, but I he he seems to be able to play everything. Right. And um and his kids as well, and they would all swap instruments and what they were doing and uh just a really neat person um who had this tragic injury. The the injury that he suffered was um quadriplegia at, at C three, C four, which is in the cervical spine. It's uh, it's about from his mid chest down. He has a very a, a little function in his hands, um, but otherwise uh, is quadriplegic. Oh, um, no. But please tell me his brain is working okay. Oh, his brain is is so sharp. Um, his and he's quick witted. Um, just a pleasure to be around. A, a funny story. Uh, he was on the witness stand and the the courtroom that we were in didn't have uh didn't have a place for a wheelchair so he well, was set out the scene because that's a big part of this story not only do you set a record you did it in my home turf denver right were you in the city and county building that's true we, it's in the old city and county building um which courtroom uh it was judge McGahey's courtroom mm -hmm. uh and uh, it, he wasn't the judge on the case, but it was his courtroom. I, I, I think it's 219 or 206. Anyway, who was it's the one judge? Of, um, it, Munzinger, who is a former uh, Jeffco chief judge who presided over this case because the be, there was a conflict the week before the trial. 
And so he he was the trial judge for us. Right, and but you'd really, agree Denver's great jurisdiction because people respect like climate change activists, people who are progressive, and it's better that it happened in Denver than a real say Mesa County, for example. Anyway, but well, go ahead. I, that's probably true. I, I mean, I from from my experience. Um, and maybe it's just two sides of that same thing. They, these jurors pay attention, they listen, um, they're pretty well educated, and they really try hard to get to the right answer. That, right. That's what that's what we saw. But so this court, this case was in one of the in that old court building, which is just a beautiful building, and it's one of the old courtrooms, which has all sorts of character and wood and and. Um, just drips of importance. Grandeur. Everything the modern courtrooms lack. It was a New Deal project. I worked in it for a big part of my life. I love that building. Go ahead. I do too. Um, the, The one drawback to some of those old buildings is that they didn't plan for some stuff that they probably should have. And so it's it's not very wheelchair accessible. And so we had two different courtrooms that didn't work really well for us and ended up in, in this one. That's why we're in Judge McGahee's uh, courtroom. And it worked better because the wheelchair could go to counsel table to be able to sit through um, good portions of the trial. Um, but it was not able to accommodate a uh, wheelchair in the witness box. And so if you needed to testify by wheelchair, you just did it out in the open, straight in front of the jury, um, which was uh, which was unique. And so we had I we had a uh, a microphone, and so we're asking him questions, and he's giving answers straight to the jury, and the jury is just loving him because of all the reasons I said before. He's just a wonderful guy. And then there was a a sidebar, which is for lawyers. It's a chance for lawyers to do some objections and and do some legal schmiegel stuff on the side that's out of the presence of the jury. And during one of those sidebars, uh, I leaned over to uh, to Gary, whose whole life was on on the line here in this case, and whose family's life was on the line. A huge amount of pressure. And expects people to sort of melt down in such a situation. And I leaned over to him and I said, I, I said, man, I was worried that my fly was down during that last questioning section. And he said, don't worry, dude, I'm not wearing underwear. <laughs> and so it was just such a great example of his spirit, his ability to just uh, uplift and be funny and in the moment and such a kind, warm, smart, wonderful guy. You know, the research shows that if you were kind, smart, and warm before you experienced trauma like that, oh my God, what Gary Sudam suffered, but you're going to end up in the same mental state most of the time because that's just your nature. It sounds like the jury picked up on its wonderful nature and the wonderful nature of its attorneys. You want to give a shout out to your partner? I, I do. I also say that one of the ways that that comes across is not just the way that you testify, but in in legal cases, we have what are called groaner witnesses, which are witnesses that can come in and kind of tell your life story in ways that you can't. 
um, just by their observations of you. And um, I've got to say, in that trial, the groaner witnesses that we had to, from work, from uh, from the rock and roll days for him, from friends in the neighborhood, that group of groaners was was the best group of witnesses I've ever seen. They just really were able to fill the picture of just such a wonderful, wonderful guy. So what was the defense? Well, the defense was uh, sort of twofold. Uh, one was that uh, the driver of the first first car was trying to blame the driver of the second car saying that all of the damage to the the cervical injury was caused by this second car and not really taking responsibility for the role of being the first car that created the whole situation by knocking him off his bike and putting him on the ground straight in front of the second car and so there was an apportionment of fault and and they thought that they had very little or no responsibility for the accident and the jury said that the first car had 90 percent of the liability and the second car at 10 percent you gotta love that when dependents start blaming each other that's yeah. one part of any trial but you know in a case like this a lot of times the client may come in and Okay, you got hit by two cars in Colorado. You're lucky if somebody does have insurance. Hopefully you have your own UIM, underinsured motorist coverage, for as much as you can possibly get. But you could run into limited policies. It comes down to a lot of luck, good luck, bad luck in this world. Who are the people who hit your client? And where in the world did you get... uh, the ability to get a record verdict, not just a record verdict, but one that got paid. How did you do that, great lawyer? Well, so um, the first car was, and this was the, the other big legal issue in the case, was the first car was um, a woman who was driving her own car, but and it was she was a temp employee who had been hired, it was called Labor Finders. And what Labor Finders does is it gets jobs, um, big jobs for groups of people. And it has people, it has these people report to a headquarters. And then it sends these people out from headquarters to do these jobs during the day and then report back to the headquarters before they're done with work. And sometimes they go by bus, sometimes they drive their own cars. One of the legal defenses in the case was that um, that as soon as you're done with the job and, and you haven't come back to headquarters yet, <clears throat> you're off the clock and you're off the job. And so a big question was whether that was whether that person is still in the course and scope of their employment when they're driving back. And uh, the important facts about that from our case was that uh, even though she was driving her own car, she was driving two different um, employees back from the job. She had been required to go back um, not only to get paid, but to return some equipment, to return the other employees, and to return the uh, work invoice order that tells labor finders whether that 
uh, job needs additional workers the final day. So what the jury determined was that that was in the course and scope of employment, that what she was doing at that time, coming back to headquarters, was an important part of of the job duties that she had that day. And, and she was the other, paid. was a defendant arguing against that? Yes. They And the argument against it was that you're off the clock, you're no longer getting paid for your time, and you could go, you could come back and get your check at any time. And, and, and uh, we are precluded as trial lawyers from bringing up the existence of insurance. But juries are smart. Don't you think they had to figure out that this finding is going to trigger some further insurance? Well, I think uh, I I don't know what they thought about insurance, and but you're right about that. That we're not allowed to talk about insurance at all. Um, I think that they realized that it was a big company um, that was employing this person, and that this company was trying to not take responsibility right. for people that they had out in the roads doing jobs. Mm-hmm. And that they needed to they needed to step up and take responsibility when they make a mistake. But they knew this was going to be about money that Gary could potentially collect. And they love Gary. They love Gary's lawyers. So let's not bury the lead. What was the verdict? Well, so the verdict um, was a um, was a judgment, and I can't remember the exact numbers. Okay, Um, let me tell you how the Denver Post wrote it up as the record all-time verdict. Gary Sudam was struck by two cars and paralyzed on January 27, 2017 as he rode his bike home from work. This month, the jury awarded him more than $52 million in a judgment against a driver and the temp work company that employed her. This was from February 15 to 2019, but that's a great day when you get a verdict like that and a great building like the city and county building. The headline is Denver Bicyclist Paralyzed in Car Crash awarded $52.5 million. Um, And it says, one of the largest jury verdicts in Colorado history. So... That, that's amazing, but it, there's a big difference between getting an award and actually collecting. And the beauty here and testimony to you and really a nice result for a guy I've fallen in love with just talking to you, Gary Sudam. It's, a, it's such a great result for him. He had such a bad break in life. Thank God he's going to be able to take care of his family, right? And that's a that's a big thing. I, I've you know, they did a bunch of appeals, um, and, and and during the course of the appeal, the 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 number that they finally paid was over fifty eight million dollars. Hmm. Um, the uh, they yeah, did a bunch that's of that's a record, right? Is there anybody oh, else who's ever gotten a jury verdict like that paid in Colorado? Not for this type of a case. Nice, and and I'll tell you a couple things about the damages that are interesting. But I, I, but but this story is that when when the final appeal was done, and we knew that for sure they were going to pay, um, we had just gotten the report from the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, my law partner and I, uh, Stuart Mann, who was incredible, he was an amazing lawyer during this this trial. 
Um, but we called to, to tell Gary the result. And um, it was just, you could feel the relief in his voice. And he, he was in the hospital. He was going in for a surgery um, to, to have a procedure that was a little, it was dangerous, it was concerning. Um, and so he was getting prepped for that surgery and the feeling in his voice of relief for not, just, not really him, but mostly for his family, that everything was going to be okay, was palpable. And it, there was this strong feeling from him that it, it sort of doesn't matter what happens in this surgery. Everything's going to be okay for my family. And it's really the kind of guy that he is. He, he just didn't want to be, a, he doesn't want to be a burden to his family. And um, so that, that is a huge relief for him. You're giving me chills. And these are the days of awe for the Jewish people. You should know all about that. Your father, Shalom. You descend from special people. You told us that story last time you were on. Um, what an awesome thing you did for this man and his family. And uh, it's a game changer for you, and you deserve it. You've been working a long time, relatively, not compared to me, but <laughs> how does it feel? Um, well, it is, it, it is a relief. Uh, to have to have it done and to to get such a good result um but you know my inspiration going into doing law in the very first place was to try to help people and uh so when when you can help someone who's so deserving and you have to help everyone you know i i, I do the same job for my whatever client it is but to, to be able to get such a good result for such a deserving and wonderful person is just, it's, it's very deeply fulfilling um, that I've chose to do something where it, it made a difference for somebody. So that, that is terribly rewarding. Absolutely. And we're trying to get a good result for some devastated clients. Sadly, Bella Thales cannot be brought back to life, but you represent her dad, Joshua. I represent Darian Simon, who survived the brutal uh, June 2020 attack on him and uh, his beloved Bella. Uh, we've made some progress. We've gotten that Dan Politico served, his company, Tyron Arms, and we've got a civil trial set in that same building, right? City and county building. That's right. And we're, I'm going to be, be proud of always. I said some criminal justice records there, not a record like you, but when we walk in together, that'll be a day. I look <laughs> forward to that. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So anyway, let's go to a case that's in the news. We're all waiting for the Barry Morphew verdict. You are one of the elite lawyers of your generation, and your generation includes some forces of nature named Iris Aton and Drew Nielsen. What do you know about these two? Well, I have done um, cases where we've had co-defendants. And so I've had the opportunity of seeing each of them in action. Um, know them somewhat on a personal level. Uh, definitely have some shared friends and, and so know about 
a lot of things that they've done, but have been able to witness the the, the quality legal work that they're capable of. And before um, you go into your analysis, let's again set your bona fides. Obviously, you are one of the elite civil attorneys in Colorado, but you know the criminal justice system. Tell everybody your experience in that regard. Um, well, I've definitely criminal law has been a big part of uh, my career. Different cases that I've done over the course of my career, I I started actually doing death penalty work. In Alabama, I worked um, for a guy, a mentor of mine, who's actually become somewhat famous recently, a guy named Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy. And there was a, a film that was about him, about going down to Alabama and representing people on death row. I was, uh, when I was at NYU, I was his law student. And then I was uh, in his first ever clinic at NYU Law School, um, which was to bring um, third-year law students down to Alabama to work on death penalty cases. And so my partner and I were the, the first students from NYU to go down to Alabama and, um, and work on a case. Um, of a guy named Nathan Slayton, who was a 17-year-old who was who was on death row, and uh, we were in Marshall County, Alabama, redoing his whole case, and we were able to uh, successfully get him off of death row. Um, and it, interestingly, because he's a juvenile, because he's under 18, he was resentenced to life in prison without parole. And recent Supreme Court cases have come along and said that life in prison without parole should be for the very rarest of circumstance for for juveniles because juveniles are so capable of change and that it's only the rare circumstance when someone should get life in prison without parole and that life of that juvenile offenders who've been sentenced to life in prison without parole are entitled to a new hearing to be able to talk about their capacity to, their, to change uh, their ability to rehabilitate. And so I'm, I was asked to come back and work on that case in Alabama, and I'm working on that case now with, a, with another uh, Colorado legend attorney named Pat Burke, who's working on that case with me pro bono um, to do this hearing in Alabama and try to get Nathan Slayton, who was once condemned and on death row, to now have an opportunity to someday get out of prison. Right. Now, Pat Burke had a role defending the Ramses in the Jean Benet investigation when you were a little kid, right? So he's a famous well, guy. Go ahead. It, not, not when I was a little kid, but uh, I, I, that case happened when I was in law school. Um, but, but Pat Burke is, is really, uh, he's an incredible person to, to work with, um, just a terrific lawyer, so intelligent, great instincts to really, um, a trailblazer in the Colorado legal community, in my view. See, I do some criminal defense work, but if you ask people, is he more a DA or a public defender, everybody would say DA because I pursued a death penalty case and I got a death penalty verdict in Denver, a record that will stand 
because they don't seek him anymore. Frank Rodriguez died on death row, but I well experienced the public defender types and uh, people really committed to that end of criminal defense. They worship at the altar of anti-death penalty. They don't like the death penalty for a variety of reasons, and I think reasonable people can disagree about it, but they don't necessarily. This kind of leads us into Iris and Drew, but it establishes your bona fides because, again, even before you really get started, you are you are like defense royalty by by doing work like that. Am I right? Well, I don't know about that. Um, I there I definitely was part of a community that was um, dedicated to trying to uphold constitutional rights for criminal defendants, and um, I was against the death penalty for a variety of reasons. Um, still am. Um, and on a number of different levels, I, I think that I can have discussions about it. Uh, but uh, there are all sorts of public defender types in this state and all over the country who have just been working incredibly hard for a long time, um, trying to make things make things fair for people who are in really tough spots. So you know this world, and how does do Iris and Drew fit into that? Well, um, they are and have been for some time just the top of top of the um, the heap. Um, they Iris, uh, uh, we used to call her uh, Hurricane Iris. What she, do you mean uh, used to? Don't you? Sell? Well, I guess I still do too. Um, but Hurricane, I just remember how do you get the name early? How do you get the name Hurricane Iris? Well, you have to be a force of nature, and that means um, just being a ferocious advocate, uh, hardworking, uh, relentless, um, smart, uh, strategic. Um, so th- I think that's how you get to be that. And and in my experience, cases I've worked on with her or known of her, she is she has been all of those things really just a terrific lawyer and drew is um she's amazing as well she has a different style to her but she's just excellent she's so intelligent and well prepared and thoughtful and is able to get both of them and both of them together be able to get just incredible results by their um being fierce being tireless being dedicated um, and being really focused on the right uh, principles, in my view. And they grew up battling guys like me as Denver public defenders. That's true. And that's true. Were they back in the day when the city and county building hosted criminal as well as record verdicts like you in civil court? Um, I can't remember where the office was then. Um. About how old are they, do you think? I believe that they are late 40s, early 50s, uh, right right in my sort of age range. Boy, that would be on the cusp. I really don't like the new Lindsay Flanagan criminal courthouse. I bet they had some time in the city and county building when things were just better. And they got trained. What were they, public defenders for about 10 years? 
You know, I don't know the exact time frame of when they they were there, um, but they were part of a whole community of uh, public defenders who uh, and I and I know a number of people that that are friendly with them, uh, but they they uh, it was a whole group of just excellent lawyers in the public defender's office. And weren't and, they both uh, married to public defenders as well, either federal or state? They were, and uh, and and people that did criminal defense and just part of that community, top so, notch, yeah, top they, notch criminal defense lawyers uh, that they married as well. I know them a little bit. I have a lot of respect for them. I know of their reputation. How did they earn that reputation? One case at a time. <laughs> uh, they, I think, just every file they pick up, they they work incredibly hard. Um, and and they're dedicated and um, and fearless and uh, they'll they've just done that time after time for years and years. I don't want to put them down by praising them, but I go back to like Cyrus Callum, Skeet Johnson, Pamela Mackey. Those were my contemporaries and those people who I respected a lot. You could have a conversation with them, and they were fierce advocates, but they weren't you know, true believers, kind of over the top in my book. Now, when it comes to Iris and Drew, obviously they're talented, skilled, but are they true believers? Are they, you know, defense attorneys through and through, public defender? You know what I'm talking about. Help me out here. I do know what you're talking about. Um, I, you know, I've never been on the other side from them to to get that perspective, uh, their ability to get such good results over such a wide array of cases over so many years tells me that they're capable of of um, of having good relationships with prosecutors as well and being able to work things out in the appropriate circumstance right, and for they, sure then, and and for sure to be well respected as being honorable ethical people. Um, and that, you know, that there are lots of district attorneys or um, you know, just prosecutors on any level, federal or state, that respect, as you were talking about, uh, fierce, fierce advocates who are criminal defense lawyers, but they know that their ethics are top notch and that they know that, that when they say something, it's true and that they're honorable people. And my my knowledge of both of them is that they're very well respected in all arenas. Right. They represented Crystal Kenny. And I say they because they have a law firm together, just like you and Stuart Mann. It's kind of cool when talented people get together. They try cases like you and Stuart did. That's an amazing partnership they have going, but... This Barry Morphew case, they have taken on a tiger, grabbed it by the tail. What's going to happen there? You know, I don't know enough about it to give to give you an answer. Well, let um, me tell you, they're against yeah. Linda Stanley. Did you ever encounter her as a hearing officer or as a prosecutor or as a cop in the Denver area? But she's a strong-willed prosecutor who's convinced that their client killed his wife they're saying, no, the wife may still be alive and you don't have anything but a bunch of circumstantial evidence. 
It's going to be a doozy of a trial in Salida, Colorado, and that's not easy for any of us front-range practitioners to put our lives on hold and do a murder case like this. I'm telling you, Josh, it's really going to be something. It is, and it's it's fun to have trials out in some of these rural counties. Um, I did one. Uh, um, it's, it was a sex assault on a child case out in Ray, Colorado, um, with a my co-counsel, who is a, another legend, just a great defense lawyer, uh, Craig Truman. Um, and we went out there and, and, and tried a case. Um, I guess that was maybe three or four years ago, but it is an interesting experience to be out there. Now you're talking about a lawyer of my vintage, or even a little before, Craig Truman, who was involved with the one guy who did get executed in Colorado. But that's another story. You've been so good with your time, Josh, especially since you've had such great success. Uh, Has your worldview changed now that you've experienced this record verdict? And if records are made to be broken, are you going to be the guy to break it? <laughs> We're certainly going to try. Um, so, um, certainly going to try. And records are always meant to be broken, and undoubtedly, it will go down like every every other record does. Um, but we were were actively looking for the appropriate case, uh, Stuart Mann and I, to uh, to be able to uh, to break that record. Mann and Maxmon is the firm. Josh Maxmon. A really welcome guest during the days of awe. What do you think your late father would have said about your success? Considering that we're between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, why would he counsel you now that you are? I mean, wouldn't he have to tell you, Josh, be careful now that you're so successful? Um, I, I, you know, I think he would have been really proud. And that's uh, and that's a that's a great thing. Um, I think he would have been really proud of that result. Um, he he always wanted to be a lawyer, so I think it would have been in some ways fulfilling kind of a dream of his, um, not just to be a lawyer, but to um, work on important cases and to do something like breaking a record like that. So think that would have meant a lot to him and uh yeah that that's a special feeling how cool is it that you are fulfilling a dream of his and by your success it's shalom's success for people who want to know more about josh go to our back episode it was about bella thalas we're going to stay on that case it's an honor to work with you on that matter josh have a great weekend the honor to work with you as well, and thanks for having me back. See ya. Okay, bye. Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you.
hey, to understand this Morphew case, it's important to consider the timing of certain things and some characters involved, like Barry Morphew, shortly after his wife went missing, he did a public plea, and he looks okay, and he sounds like this. Oh, Suzanne, if anyone is out there that can hear this, that has you, please, we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. We love you, we miss you, your girls need you. No questions asked. However much they want, I will do whatever it takes to get you back. Honey, I love you, and I want you back so bad. Now, we talk a lot about Mallory and Macy, the two daughters, whose opinion I think will contribute to a likely outcome of not guilty if they're in the courtroom supporting dad, but maybe not. Mike King had his good points, and believe me, there's going to be another side of the family, and that's Suzanne Mormon Morphew's relatives. Melinda Mormon, the sister who speaks out for her sister, Suzanne Morphew, convinced as she is that her brother-in-law is guilty. Allegedly at the hands of her husband, and now her sister is speaking out. Melinda Mormon says from day one of her sister's disappearance last Mother's Day, she thought her brother-in-law, Barry Morphew, was responsible. When this all went down a year ago, did you think it had something to do with Barry? Yes. What made you think that Barry could be the one to blame? The Friday before Mother's Day. My sister had um, sent me a text message that morning. It was very lengthy. It was very powerful. It was very revealing. She was ready to share some things that she'd been keeping close to her vest. Melinda says her sister Suzanne had expressed concern for her own safety in the past. Was your sister scared of Barry? Yes. What made her scared of her own husband? Barry was very dominant in the relationship, and my sister was a very passive, gentle soul. He had a great tendency to overpower and intimidate people to get what he wanted. Do you think that Barry killed your sister? Yes, I do. Morphew has maintained his innocence, claiming he was 150 miles away in Denver and staying at a Holiday Inn Express when his wife disappeared. The Morphews have two daughters, Mallory and Macy, who are standing by their dad. The Morphews' daughters apparently refuse to believe their dad had anything to do with the presumed slaying of their mother. They were inside the courtroom during his hearing where they made a heart-shaped sign of support with their hands and mouthed the words, I love you. Parents have a, a very powerful influence on their children for good or for evil. Despite extensive searches, Suzanne's remains have yet to be found. Melinda says for now, she believes only her brother-in-law has the power to give his wife a decent burial. I want you to tell the truth. Please do the right thing, Barry. Please do the right thing. Now, to buttress the fact that this is an international case, consider the Daily Mail, which knows a thing about tabloid journalism. They are big. They are popular. They like pictures of pretty people, and they are all over this case. Listen to the Daily, Daily Mail take on the Barry Morphew matter. 
begin with a shocking development in the case of a missing Colorado mom of two. Barry Morphew is now charged with first-degree murder in his wife Suzanne's death. Now, you may recall Suzanne went missing just over a year ago on Mother's Day. Well, today we hear from her grieving sister who insists that she's praying for Barry, who may spend the rest of his life behind bars. Justice is beginning for my sister. Barry Morphew stands accused of murdering his wife, Suzanne, who disappeared on Mother's Day 2020. Suzanne went out for a solo bike ride and never returned. Nearly one year later, her body has not been found. Our beliefs of Suzanne is still is not alive at this time. Suzanne's husband, Barry, has been charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and attempting to influence a public servant. One bystander captured this drive-by video of his Highway 50 arrest. In an audio message to Suzanne's two daughters, her sister Melinda says she is praying for their dad, an alleged killer. I love your dad. Though he has done a terrible thing, I still love him, girls, and I will pray for him and continue pray for him and I will never stop. I am here for you. Whenever you need me, girls, I am here and I have all the love in the world for you. One week after Suzanne's disappearance, Barry released this video begging for her safe return. Oh, Suzanne, if anyone is out there that can hear this, that has you, please, we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. I will do whatever it takes to get you back. Honey, I love you. I want you back so bad. Morphew later proposed his own theory that Suzanne was killed by a mountain lion. In February, Daily Mail TV spotted Morphew leaving dinner with a mystery redhead. Just one month later, he sold the Colorado home he shared with Suzanne and their two daughters for $1.6 million. I want the world to know that my sister was the darling of our family. The investigation around Suzanne's death is still underway. Without her body, her cause of death remains a mystery. As far as I'm concerned, today is all about Suzanne, and it's about her family, and it's about all the individuals that knew her and loved her and cared about her. And for those of you who wonder what happened with Linda Stanley going on with Mike King and his Profiling Evil podcast, was that okay? Decide for yourself. Go to Mike's websites. He's all over social media. I urge you to watch this on YouTube because Linda Stanley is attractive, so is her husband. And it's an interesting way to get to know the DA on this most important case. But you can also listen to that interview with our guest, Mike King, and his guest, DA Linda Stanley, who has a standing invite to come on my podcast as well, because this is compelling. So, so as you as you're putting together a case of this magnitude, and you're trying to glue all of these pieces together, uh, how do you orchestrate all of that so that it actually paints a picture that someone can see in their mind and say that makes sense? Well, it's difficult, obviously. Um, you know, we got the case uh, the day that we arrested him, so. That's when the DA's office starts to get everything that all the investigators have done. And that includes FBI, CBI, sheriff's office, et cetera. So they start giving us all the evidence until that time. Like when I said in the press conference that I met with them a couple of different times, we were given key points of stuff, but not everything. So we have to review everything. And we're talking about several terabytes of evidence, obviously, as you've heard, um, it's a lot because it was a year investigation 
um, many, many search warrants, lots and lots of tips that have to be looked into. So it's a lot. So when we're presenting something in a prelim, we're presenting the stuff that we believe will get to the point of probable cause. Yeah, uh, that's that's something. You know, I I uh, today I did a, a uh, podcast with Nancy Grace and uh, former prosecutor, and and uh, she said, "Now, are you sure you want to do this? Because people are going to yell at you for being on with me." And I just laughed and said, "People yell at me when people are on with me." So, but Nancy said something I thought that was really interesting. She said it would be interesting to know the choice that was made between a grand jury and a preliminary hearing. What, why, why don't you describe some of that process of how you decide which direction you're going to go? Sure. Um, and people are mad at me all the time too. So <laughs> come on in. The water's fine. Um, <laughs> there's never been a grand jury in this district. I found that out after I was elected. Actually, uh, we did uh, want to do a grand jury for this case. However, because of COVID protocols, we weren't able to. So we had to try to get enough evidence for an arrest affidavit, hmm. um, enough probable cause to get that, that a judge would sign off on, and we did. So that's why we didn't do the grand jury. But I agree that I think it would have been a good grand jury case. Yeah, yeah, that would. And, and um, why would a grand jury be more um, streamlined than the process that you just went through a preliminary hearing? Well, I like a grand jury because a grand jury is just common folk, basically kind of like a jury itself. So, and they only indict a ham sandwich as everybody says, but um, I think it's important um, for that reason. You have common people that are there to make a decision. So, and, and I, th that's kind of an important thing to me too, that I've always found with a grand jury is you as a prosecutor are having to appeal to a jury of what, would be called peers versus in a preliminary hearing, you're arguing to a legal expert that's sitting on the bench that's seen it all. Correct. So big difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that that's really interesting. I didn't realize that. And you know, COVID really changed a lot of criminal cases this last two years, didn't it? It did. It did. So I'm hoping that eventually we can get to the stage where we can take some of these cases to a grand jury. I, I have a question. Um, I, I'm curious. Sorry, Tyler, I, you're not allowed. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm makes kidding. my night easy. I'm out of here. <laughs> um, I, I've always wondered, you know, like, like I've been in sales for most of my career, pretty much all my career. And I know what it's like to go do all these presentations, do all the pre-work and uh, either have the sale close or not close and the feelings you get. So what's it like when you're sitting like, all that changes for me is whether the person has a little bit of money or not, you know, and at the end of my, my meeting. So, so what, what do you feel during cases like this? You put all this work into it. You're going to a case. I'm sure there's anxiety. There's, there's stress, there's excitement there. I mean, what, what do you yeah. feel when you're doing these cases? It's funny. Cause you said you've spent your life in sales S a L E S and I heard sales <laughs> E L L S and I'm like, well, I can't wait to hear this story. Either either one, either one's probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I I, I just want to know the the feelings that you and your team or even the defense's team feels during a trial like this. You've got all this stuff you've prepared and 
and uh, you're you're presenting it, and things don't go as planned. Things do go as planned. Like the the emotional roller coaster you must go through. Things never ever ever go as planned <laughs> in a motions hearing to a prelim to a trial. Never ever ever. It can even be a court trial with like one witness. Never. Wow. So you have to have you have to be able to think on your feet, react on your feet right away to be able yeah. to um, come across that kind of stuff and know how to turn it back around again, I guess you could say. Wow. Well, you know, that makes me think of uh, the Dante Lucas trial. And I, I know that was an area where you actually prosecuted it for a time. But uh, a witness that they're preparing the following morning to bring on the stand gets murdered the night before in a completely opposite thing. I mean, what kind of curveball is that to a prosecutor? Well, it's a big one, and you have to decide <laughs> yeah. whether or not you're going to need that person, or you know, can make try to do a continuance or whatever you have to do. But yeah, it's a big that's a big curveball for sure. Yeah, the <clears throat> one thing that's troubled a lot of people uh, that they haven't um, really been able to kind of make sense of is the difference between a preliminary hearing and a presumption grade hearing. Right. So this is a combination prelim presumption great. Um, it's called proof evident presumption great. So if you hear it called PEPG, that's what it is. And what it is, proof evident presumption great occurs if somebody possibly will not be granted bond in charges like first degree murder. And what it means is, is the proof evident or the presumption great that this individual did commit first degree murder and therefore should not be allowed to have bond. So we have a combination of a prelim to see if we have probable cause on those five charges. So remember, the voting um, charges are not part of this prelim at all. They're a separate case. And so we have to show in the prelim that we have probable cause for each of those five charges. And then we're also trying to show that the proof is evident or the presumption is great that this person did indeed commit those crimes, including first degree murder. Um, otherwise, the judge can let him out on bond. We uh, we we actually ran a poll uh, today and had hundreds of respondents come back, where we weighed a number of questions based on what I had pitched earlier uh, last week or late last week about circumstantial versus just a coincidence. And uh, it was really interesting. We're going to publish that after for people just to look at and see what the results were. But um, one thing that I thought was interesting is that um, the majority, uh, like 80%, felt like the state had uh, presented enough that Barry would be bound over. And I'm not going to ask you for that. I just want you to know that because... Um, one thing that I, I, if I remember the attorneys that I worked for over the years, they had no idea what was happening in social media or on the news when they were in a case. Well, tell me about you in that regard. Um, well, anything that was in the prelim and presented at the prelim is public information. As you know, everybody was, was on Twitter and there was lots of news reports, et cetera. So, yes, I can talk about any evidence that already is out in the public eye, just like I could talk about anything that was presented at the press conference when he was arrested, anything at the press conference with Phillips, any of that stuff, anything that's out in the public, I can already um, discuss. So it's not any kind of an ethical thing. Obviously, I'm not going to answer any other questions about any other evidence that we have or 
what I think or anything like that. I'm not going to answer anything like that. Well, thankfully, I spend enough years in the business. I know not to ask those questions, <laughs> but I have been chewed out online by a few people saying, I had you here and I didn't ask. And so I'm sure I'll get some more of those. But here's what I am going to ask you. You did. I did. Remember, I told you you were stalking me and you were asking me questions. And I said, no and no. And you said, OK, let's move on. And it, yeah, you tried it on me. It didn't work. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I guess I should get a, a star for trying on my forehead or something. But here's one I do wonder if you might answer. Okay. And that is, I had uh, a number of uh, members who listened to Profiling Evil who actually were in the courtroom during day three and four of the, the preliminary hearing. Also another YouTuber uh, and uh, Vanessa from Unmasked who was in the courtroom for day three and four. And uh, I remember getting a text from one of them saying, oh, my gosh, Barry's staring down the DA and she's staring back at him. <laughs> Can you talk about that at all? Every chance I got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that he's shorter than me. But, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's I interesting. The, the the verbal and nonverbal uh, behavior and communication that goes on in a courtroom is really astounding. And I, I know that um, experience helps you as you go through that. Um, but that was that was really interesting. Um, so what's what's next? How, how does the process work now? Uh, the judge is going to make a decision on September 17th to bind over or to release Barry Morphew. The thing that I think is, is um, a little surprising to me that I don't quite understand, and I don't know how normal it is, is that there, he's going to allow for arguments after he's had weeks to think through the case. Is that anything you can talk about? Well, we discussed that. Um, you know, he probably already had his mind made up. We're still going to present, obviously, um, some sort of a, a closing. And you had said that he has he has two options to release or bind over. There's actually three options. So he could release him um, on any of those charges, but then bind him over for the other ones. And which, you know, if it's not first degree murder, for instance, then there'd be arguments on his bond for some of the other felonies. Um, he could also find probable cause for all five charges. Um, he could find that there is not a uh, presumption great or proof evident, even though there is probable cause. And then he could set a bond for the first degree murder as well. So there's a couple of different things that he could do on the 17th. It's interesting. Um, yeah. And, and then uh, we had a question today and I, I want to make sure I didn't massacre the answer on this. Um, if, if he were to uh, not be charged and bound over, would the state be able to bring back charges at a later time if they produce more evidence? Yes, double jeopardy doesn't attach until the jury is seated. Double hmm. jeopardy is a clause in the Constitution that you can't be tried twice for the same crime. Okay, oh. good. I said it right. However, double, know jeopardy, double jeopardy does not apply between state and federal law. So you could have somebody who is tried for maybe kidnapping um, and murder and then also be tried at federal level for the same thing. It doesn't apply oh, wow. between state and federal. That's so, really interesting. So recapped again, dumb, dumb brain here. Um, 
so if he's released, you can go after it again if you feel like there's cause to. And then once a trial happens, then you can go after him again on a federal level if there's cause to. We can't, but the feds can. Right, right, if they right. Chose to. Right. Very interesting. So, um, Skyler, you asked me a question a minute ago too about, or was it you, Mike, that asked me a question about the stress or how I deal with yes. the stress? Skyler. So um, Carson's here. He's he makes dinner for me every single night because I work all the time. He's going to come and say hi to everybody. Say <laughs> well, hi, Carson. Cat, I hear. I have, I have a oh. couple of questions for Carson. Like I've been wanting to. Hey, 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 no, you got a duck. You're moved. <laughs> oh, there you go. Nice <laughs> <and> big. <laughs> now, you know, um, yeah. Carson, the job of a dad is to always interrogate whoever the daughter has fallen in love with. And, uh, <laughs> and here, here's Mike, my question. Here's. Mike, Hang on, Mike. What? If, yes, if, if I cough twice and wink three times, please send help. <laughs> yeah. That's about right. So, Carson, I can't ask Linda this question, but I'm going to ask you. Did I, she? I'll let, I'll let him know if he's going to answer. <laughs> there, there are people that are still asking if if uh starsky ever took her out on a date and i told him i cannot answer this question not yet <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, i i couldn't i could not deny her that opportunity when it presents itself available so <laughs> That's he really awesome. didn't like. He really didn't like it when I asked Darsky to marry me, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that, that was a little awkward. That was a little awkward. But <laughs> well, Carson, it's awesome to meet you, and thanks for sharing a little piece of the evening tonight. Because I, I promised the DA we would only keep her on a short time, but I do have one other kind of. I think a pretty interesting question to me anyway. And that was Linda, you had this case for a year. T talk about that. Well, we didn't really have it for a year. Remember? I mean, we just arrested him on the fifth, which I wanted to talk about a little bit, by the way, anyway, but anyway, um, we arrested him on the fifth. So we didn't have it for a year. It wasn't given to our office to begin the prosecution until after he's arrested. Like I said, everybody starts sending all their stuff through our discovery portal and we start going through all of it, trying to organize it, et cetera. But we're all still have dockets. We're all still in court every day as well. <clears throat> it's important that to remember that as well. Well, uh, and you kind of mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Go back and kind of revisit that for us. Well, I, I had some people tell me that there was some stuff on, on YouTube after the press conference about what I was wearing, and I really didn't get a chance to, to say anything about that. Not that I care, but it was it was just a little bit, in my opinion anyway, a little bit um, misguided so that people know. I got a call um, late that night that the arrest affidavit for Barry Morphew was signed by the judge, so we were going to go get him the next morning. So I had to set my alarm for 1.30 in the morning to drive up there and then wait for him. He did not leave at the time we thought he was going to early in the morning. So I could have slept in for, I don't know, another four hours or so. But it, I certainly was not going to be sitting there in a suit. And I had no reason to believe that it wasn't going to be just like Phillips where we arrested him and then we did the press conference the following day. But because 
it was right there on Highway 50. Um, and when the sun was up, so by the, you know, before we even got back to the sheriff's office, it was all over the place. And so, and I, I said to the public information officer, there's no way I'm doing this right now. And she said, yes, you are. <laughs> so I did, but it was cold that morning. So I had my jacket on and I dressed comfortable. So I just want people to know that normally I am in a suit every other time you've seen me, but that day was a little different. So for those who are offended, sorry, not sorry. I'm going to be comfortable at 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> I have discovered that there's always someone that will have something to say about everything. Um, and uh, and I want you to know, having worked for prosecutors most of my career, uh prosecutors when it's time to get down and dirty and get out in the woods and help the officers, especially on a major case, got to be able to get comfortable and go do their job. And I was thrilled to see you that way. And I want to just tell you for whatever it's worth, uh, you made a comment in that press conference that I don't know that I'll ever forget when challenged on the evidence in this case, and you made it very clear what your job is and what your level of confidence is in doing your job. I don't know if you want to share that, but I promised you that we'd have you off by seven and I wanted to give you a chance to take a few minutes and just chat. Well, I can stay a little bit longer if you need to since I got on a little bit late, but um, I do remember that <laughs> that question really made me mad, but keep in mind, I had been up since 1.30 in the morning, so I had a very, very <laughs> short fuse at that point. But how can I convince the public that we have a strong case I just want to go, who the hell do you think you are, dude? I mean, I'm the lawyer over here. I don't need to tell you that information. So I just said, that's my job. <laughs> that's, that, I'm the one that makes that determination, not you with the microphone and the camera. I, I'm the one that makes that determination. Leave it up to me. Thanks anyway. Next mm. question. That's awesome. You know, I, I don't know if I ever had a case that I didn't get into court and say, oh, I wish I'd have done this or I wish I'd have done that. But uh, talk a little bit about law enforcement in the 11th Judicial District, because you have a batch of ground to cover and a lot of different agencies. We do. We have a ton of agencies, including DOW. We also have somewhere around eight separate state prisons in the district. So we also deal with all the crimes that happen in the prisons. So there's a lot. And, um, and our law enforcement is just great. We just... We we I think we work together great. Um, they can pick up the phone and call me anytime, and vice versa too. So and that's how it should be, I think. Yeah, that is. Um, you, you know, um, I I watched you. You had a, a law enforcement background. You have a prosecution background, and and as an officer, being able to deal with somebody that understood the trench that I stood in would be pretty darn compelling and good. Uh, has that been beneficial for you? Yes, especially when I do things like show up for Phillips arrest and show up for Morphe's arrest. And I understand that as an officer, you're, you may have some questions for the prosecutor and you wish that somebody was there for questions because it never works out the way it's supposed to. Um, and so I go for that reason and I go because I, I'm that kind of a hands-on prosecutor I just, I want to be there. If somebody brought up what really happened or didn't, I was there. I know too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I've, I've been a little confused by uh, because I don't face it in the States that I've worked in 
is you're in a state that has now said there are not capital murder cases. And yet, how do you pay for this thing? Because there's always been money available on a capital murder case for all of the additional expenses that go when you could when you could put someone to death for the crime. Here you can't, but your costs have got to be astronomical. Well, uh, they can be. We have a couple of different things that we're you know planning on doing in order to help to recoup some of that um, cost as well. And there's a couple of different people I'm looking to bring on to the team. Um, and I'm talking about the Morphew team. That's it. Nothing else but helping on the Morphew case. So that kind of stuff will help out a lot too. It's just, it's a huge, huge case. And we know it and we know that we're going to need additional people there. And there's, there's absolutely no shame in that at all. So that's gotcha. what we'll do. Now, um, I'm going to quit asking questions, give you a chance to interrogate me if you need to. But um, <laughs> the one question that I've, I've wondered about, too, uh, has, has to do with this um, process of, of uh, well, let me rephrase this. Right before uh, this case happened, the death penalty was repealed in Colorado or very close to that. Wasn't it like a few weeks before that? Did that impact any of the opportunity to make this a death penalty case versus a life without parole? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's some people that I think life in prison without parole is a lot worse than dying. Well, there you go. So I, I think in some instances, life without parole is a lot better. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, I, so, Linda, you've got, you know, a lot of people watching you right now, and I wanted to give you the floor to, if you had anything that you had thought about talking about, let you have a chance to talk about it. We'll put a muzzle on Mike for a couple of minutes and let you get out any thoughts that you have. Um, he's not laughing because he's not paying attention. <laughs> but but uh, just give you a couple minutes to to anything that you wanted to talk about when you came on here, you know, we had a lot of questions, but I'm sure you had something you wanted to say. So I wanted to let everybody know that I did get Starsky's books that he signed for me and this huge striped tomato poster that was also signed by him. So um, I got it up in my office now. That is awesome. Lots of people ask what the striped tomato is because they don't know, but I have to explain They gotta be it. young. That's all I can think. <laughs> Um, so let's see what else. Um, I wanted to let people know that, and if they don't know this about me, they need to know this about me. I'm never going to compromise my ethical beliefs at all or compromise a case at all for anyone or anything. So if Mike asked me to come on the show to talk about some of the stuff regarding the prelim, yes, I did. I talked about probable cause. I talked about presumption, great proof, evident, et cetera, et cetera. I talked about how the other case isn't a part of it talked about the closing arguments coming up on the 17th, talked about the fact that the other case isn't with this case and just all kinds of things about it that are, it, it's all out in the public. Anything that's out in the public is okay to talk about. So that's what I'm doing. And I, you know, I'm a little bit insulted that people would think that, but maybe they don't know me well enough to know, but I thought this is my third time 
on here, by now you should know who I am and what I'm about, <laughs> and more importantly, what I am not about. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I can back you up on that. Um, I uh, and and I would never uh, sacrifice the criminal justice system for anything else. But that is that's awesome. So. Um, I, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking time. I mean, I, I, I know that you had an opportunity to to meet with the press and, and talk in the press, and you thought this would be a great opportunity to just let that YouTube community who may or may not catch the press just to catch a glimpse right. of what this criminal justice system's about. But uh, we're going to be we're going to be uh, watching with bated breath for September seventeenth. And uh, wish you and your team the very best as you continue to protect the people in the 11th district, because it is it is uh, admirable and evident that you care about what you do. Yeah, I care a lot about it. I, I really honestly do. That's why things like this and things like Phillips, where nothing had been done for a while, it was important for me to take a second look at it and and decide whether or not we're going to go ahead and go forward on it. And one thing I don't ever want is somebody to second guess that decision. Just don't do it. It was my decision. I'll take responsibility for it, full responsibility for it, no matter what happens. It was my decision to move forward on this case right now. Well, thank you. And thanks for coming on again tonight, for taking time out of your evening. Uh, Your days are jam-packed, and I'm going to get you back so you can – you can uh, get some more orders pushed out in the home. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, Thanks, that's Linda. you know, it's the truth, Skyler. You know, he cooks every night for me, so that's good. I don't have to, yeah. So I can work a 10, 12 hour day and not have to stop at McDonald's on the way back or whatever. I was so. gonna say Chick Fil A cooks for us every night. So oh man, it's... we don't have a Chick Fil A around here. Stop it! <laughs> oh, thank you, Linda, so much for coming on. Um, you said that if they don't know you, but you know, but they, they, I think people will. After all is said and done, people are gonna know you. So this is this is fun to watch. We appreciate yeah, you coming on. Yeah, we did do on. some interviews with some other media outlets afterwards that had asked for it, and we told them the yeah. same thing. We can't talk about anything that was not brought up in the prelim or otherwise public. And and a couple of times questions were asked and said, not going to answer, not going to answer. It's really yeah. simple. Well, thanks so much, Prosecutor. Uh, best wishes as you move through the next couple of weeks, and we're going to be interesting to or interested to watch when this thing goes to a jury trial because it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting case. It is going to be interesting. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to come on again. And yes, I'm tired, but I'm glad to come back on again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Linda. Good night. Thanks. Good night. See you, Linda. <laughs> what an amazing person i mean so talented so uh doggedly determined to do the job in the right way and i'll tell you i just am honored that she would take time out of her schedule to to come on with us holy cow troubadour now you've done it you brought your dog in Sorry, I hope he's okay here. That was unexpected, and my vaunted watchdogs, they love Riley so much they didn't even bark. No, no, everybody's good. What a song you have for me. I just read the lyrics. You've not yet provided the music, but the title alone is intriguing. Easier said than done. 
Boy, that's timely. You know why? Tell me. I'll tell you. Thanks for asking. Joe Biden's Afghanistan exit. Maybe that was easier said than done. Definitely. Maybe America getting fully vaccinated. Easier said than done. A good point. But what is happening right now that is of utmost importance as we record Friday afternoon? What is tomorrow? Tomorrow? Yeah. It's, um, well, it's Saturday. It's not Yom Kippur yet. Well, no, it's not Yom Kippur. That comes up right after Kol Nidre Wednesday night. What is it? It's Shabbat tomorrow. It's Shabbat. But what, what Shabbat is it? Oh, you might have me on that one. Shabbat Shubah. You know why? That's the biggest, the most exalted. What is the hierarchy of Jewish holidays? Dare I ask? You're an older Jewish guy than me, so it's not a trick question. Give us the hierarchy. Yom Kippur. It even means... Number one. It even means head of the year, doesn't it? Correct. You got it. What's number two? In terms of importance of observance. Well, then... um, I would say it would be Passover. You would be wrong. Try again. Rosh Hashanah. You would be wrong. Try again. Sukkot. You would be wrong. Quit trying. Shabbat. Shabbat. Okay. But some Shabbats are bigger than others. Israeli pounding with his tail on the wall. That's all right. What's the biggest Shabbat? Shabbat Shuvah, the one between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Thank you for teaching me that. You are very welcome, but these are the days of awe. We believe that the Book of Life is open on Rosh Hashanah, and who shall live and who shall perish. Yes, it's kind of a big deal, and when is that book closed up? On the eve of of Yom Kippur. No, not on the eve, on the the day. On the day, yeah. When the the Yom Kippur is over, give a guy a chance to repent. On the setting sun, on the setting sun of Yom Kippur Three stars. That's when you can break the past. By the way, you're invited to break the past, but maybe you'll be at Shul. I don't know. But the bottom line is we've got a fast and all of this. And before we start that Day of Atonement, Repentance Day, the biggest deal, Yom Kippur, we have Kol Nidre. And you know what we say? What on Kol Nidre? We're about to go into this intense period of praying, God, and here we are sinners. In fact, we're going to talk in Aramaic right now and tell you that all the vows we're about to make, we repudiate them because we are sinners. We know we probably won't keep up with all of them. That's the concept. Do you get it? I've been, I've been going to temple for many years now. I think I get it. Right. You go to Kol Nidre, that's a big deal. And do you repudiate your vows? I do. Right. That's wise. And isn't that kind of the message of your song? Easier said than done. I'm going to say some things, but (laughs) I don't think I can do them. I, I think it has broad interpretation. Well, tell us what your song, Easier Said Than Done, is about. The idea I had behind this one is a, a, a spouse or maybe boyfriend of, of a woman. Um, they're going to visit her family that he just has nothing in common with. And it's, 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 uh, it's kind of placed in modern times where there's uh, the, what, what, what he objects to is some of their uh, right-wing thinking, conspiracy thinking, and that sort of thing. 
but the first few lines really fit Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur, nervous, unsteady, trying to get ready. Feels like the judgment day. We're visiting your clan again. Hope I don't offend again. I can't wait to hear this song. We're about to, but I need a commitment before the days of all are over because we did not do it on Rosh Hashanah. You were busy, I think, your social calendar. Me and Trish and the brisket was delicious. We might have some leftovers I can bring over. And you brought us apples and honey. Thank you for that because you have a bumper crop of apples, right? Yes, I do. There's a good apple season. And did you know this is a Shemitah year? Do you know what that means? A good apple year. Well, God said after six days of hard work, what do you do? You rest. And the Shemitah concept comes from biblical times is that every seventh year you give your land a rest. Right. Sensible. Sensible in agricultural terms, isn't it? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And it kind of plays out in Colorado because you don't have a bumper crop of apples every year in your backyard. No. Mm -mm. I don't know what the cycle is, but it has to do with some of these ancient concepts. And one of those is Tashlik, one of my favorites. Tell everybody what Tashlik means to you. It means I have to bring cinder blocks to the river and heave them in. Sometime after Rosh Hashanah, while the Book of Life is open, you take your sins, traditionally it's breadcrumbs, some people use pebbles, but you make a ripple in the water and you cast away your sin. And it's kind of a New Year's resolution and it's a beautiful thing and we have not yet gone to my most important body of water to get that done. What's the most important body of water in my life? Well, it would be Kent Lake. Which is... Where you had your near-death experience. No, that's close. And what's the tributary of Kent Lake? The waterway that has encircled my life. I'm a simple guy from Colorado. I don't got... The Platte. How about the Highline Canal? Okay. Which rarely has water in it, which makes it kind of an odd choice of my most important waterway. But my entire life, except when I was in college or law school... I've lived within walking distance of the Highline Canal. I bet I'm not the only one in the Denver area. You are the only one who's written a song easier said than done. Troubadour Dave Gunders, good yontif. Good yontif. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Trying to get ready Feels like a judgment day Is it in your clan again? Hope I don't offend again You say it's fine, alright Please don't talk about religion And please don't forget to ask How my dad has been doing Lately his life But it's easier said than done Seems I freeze when the moment comes Thinking maybe I could run Cause things are getting out of hand And it's easy cause I believe You come running through the rain 
Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. So there you have it. It is our show. It was a doozy. Thank you, Troubadour Dave Gunders, and happy holidays. Easier said than done. Perfect song for approaching Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, Day of Repentance. For anybody out there who I may have offended this last year, sorry. I am sorry, because I'm not perfect, and I don't want to offend people unnecessarily. And that can happen along the way. I really appreciated getting to know Mike King. I think it's fascinating what he has been able to do on social media. And I think it's important that we talk about big cases in our system, like Josh Maxmon's incredible verdict in the Sudal case. 
Way to go. It's too damn case. Excuse me. Gary, you got a great lawyer and a great result. Good for you. Josh Maxmont, thanks again for giving us a little more about Drew Nielsen and Iris Aton, the attorneys in the eye of the storm, representing Barry Morphew. Barry Morphew, who voted for Donald Trump for his wife and himself while she was missing. I think that's interesting. Linda Stanley, Republican candidate, she arrested his ass. And now a jury from that part of the world will decide his fate. Because I think this case is going to trial. Let's see if it's on murder after deliberation. Until next time, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.